0: What's making my hemodialysis more portable? My name is Jeff and together with my co-host Ali Zafara on this episode of Physician Founded, we chat with Dr. Paul Kamenda, the CMO of Dialysis. On this series, we chat with physician founders as well as those who support startups in the health tech space. Paul, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well today, Jeff. Working from home, as many of us are, unless I have to be in the hospital trying to just batten down the hatches and uh, survive through this wave. But uh, I love the intro. It really tried to make try some, add some excitement to the topic of hemodialysis that hasn't changed in 40 years. So thanks for the attempt.
0: And I'll gently highlight the word attempt there. So, Paul, you're a physician and a nephrologist, what led you down that path? Sure,
1: Jeff, that's an easy intro. I wanted to be a physician as long as I can remember. My dad was a um, family doctor grinding it out on a fee-for-service practice for uh, 30, 40 years here in Winnipeg, and always had a tremendous admiration for him and the practice of medicine, the art of medicine as well. My mom was a nurse, so again, just very strong healthcare background, and I never wanted anything differently. And I think as my sort of became more mature and my thoughts got more in line with reality of beyond just like idyllic childlike admiration my dad it was honestly we all say we want to help people we all want to make a difference in society i think that's the root of why most of us do medicine but then it was also just the application of science and problem solving to help and, and to really innovate so Doing medicine, I was attracted to internal medicine because of that. I really wasn't a good, you know, with my hands, surgical type of personality, which is great for people that are. I'm just not inclined that way. And then really got into medicine, got into nephrology because I was attracted to devices and and the chemistry around it, physiology behind it, being able to follow patients longitudinally through the life cycle. So like it's not just a specialty where you have one interaction with somebody, you leave and you hand it off to other physicians. It was you saw people through a life cycle of early stage chronic kidney disease, dialysis, transplantation, all of that. And then evolving my career even further after a period of time, medicine can sometimes becomes a little bit process-oriented in certain areas. And I really wanted to take that a next step with research and then my subsequent career now.
2: And I think that's a good segue to ask the next question. So your journey begins in medicine and then nephrology more specifically, where did the interest in getting into the venture space come from?
1: Yeah, that's That's another leap, uh, Ali. Early on in my career, I did, a, I did a lot of lab medicine You know, as an early researcher and undergrad. I can tell you a funny story that my first lab job was researching a diarrheal illness called cryptosporidium. And, and really, we were trying to isolate antigens for cryptosporidium that caused it to do, develop a diagnostic test for it. So my original job was they would inoculate cal- calves with cryptosporidium, which causes a massive diarrheal illness, and I would have to take oh. a cow, the cow poop and pipette it, spin it down and try to isolate these antigens. My entire summer was really up to my years in cow poop. And, uh, and so that cures anybody after a couple summers of that of wanting to do a career in like bench-based lab me- uh, medicine. So so I quickly discovered uh, cow poop was the catalyst. That really, that's it's a funny, hum- my humble origin story is is not glamorous, uh, Ali. And basically, went to, did my training in Manitoba, went to Western University for internal medicine, BC for nephrology, and ran into a fantastic mentor in Vancouver named Dear Levin. She's a world-renowned nephrologist, Order of Canada, and she's just a really inspiring figure. She had pursued a career where she is currently still the head of nephrology at UBC and head of the BC Renal Agency and done some very innovative things globally in terms of the, the business of dialysis and medicine and so on but on the public sector side. And she basically encouraged me to do my MBA health administration at UBC as part of my fellowship, got interested in business and health economics and so on. And that sort of allowed me to lens my research in the areas of health economics, um, trying to establish reasons for health inequities and solve those problems, whether it be on the prevention side or the dialysis delivery side. And very soon, once you do that stuff, you publish papers, you get grants, and it becomes this treadmill. And I think a lot of researchers get stuck in that, and, then, and, and and then that's their whole career. Whereas I really wanted to focus on in the most recent chapter of my career, last few years, on sustainability. And sustainability can be either mm-hmm. you hand off that project to a government program, and that's great, and I've done that with a lot with, with a lot of kidney disease screening stuff, or you try to innovate the specialty as an expert to something you can make a difference at scale, on a global scale or national scale or or in different markets. And that's really how I got excited. Instead of getting grants that are self-limited projects that really have difficulty with sustainability, working with companies where the dollars are significantly bigger, the stakes are higher, and your chance to make a difference on a much broader scale is there. But really the, the fundamental roots, you have to have expertise in something to take that on. And that's where I find that path that I took really helped me, you know, launch me into a kind of C-suite position.
0: Yeah. So I guess a a little question here, just for a short answer, what exactly is your role with Quanta right now?
1: Yeah. So Quanta Dialysis Technologies is a startup hemodialysis device manufacturer based in the Midlands in the UK. We have just commercialized a, a portable, powerful, easy to use hemodialysis device intended for home or self use that can be used across from intensive care unit all the way to the home. And I've been now chief medical officer of this company for the last three years, taking on a bigger and bigger portion of my time as I slowly exit academic medicine and move more into the private sector. I've seen my role at Quanta has been multitude of things as you are in a startup. I originally, you know, met with the FDA, was one of my first things to do with Quanta as a consultant, being the doctor on the table, the nephrologist with Quanta. I've done studies with Quanta. I've uh, raised a Series C and a Series D raise as part of the pitch team and dealt with, we've done probably, I think, three or 400 pitches to VCs and private equity firms and so on. Our last round, being a Series D, closed up last year of $245 million, one of the largest med tech um, uh, venture rounds ever raised. The largest definitely in dialysis. And uh, now have starting to build a medical and clinical affairs team where we can sort of do a lot of knowledge generation with new studies with the device, communicate to commercial and marketing teams our messaging, but also sponsoring projects with teams of engineers for new developments and features on the device, digital health products. So there's, there's a whole suite of things that you know, when you're a company this size, chief medical officer takes on a role where you do you do wherever you're needed. I mean, in a lot of areas right now, and sort of diving with both feet and learning a ton from the team around me.
0: That's fascinating. So although the role title CMO specifies the medical part, I I would come to expect is largely to deal with clinical trials, ensuring that clinical trials get designed and done properly. You're taking on so many different roles. And Is there any particular reason why you're taking on those roles? Is it because you want to smoothen that exit outside, like to the commercial space in med tech? Or is this what is expected of CMOs usually being involved in series, you know, Cs and Ds?
1: It's my my first role as CMO, Jeff. I do have a lot of peers who are CMOs in other startups or large organizations that I look to to say, hey, what are they doing calibrating my role? But I think Whenever you're in startup world, I mean, you guys know, you're familiar with this as well. You do what's asked because you don't have people working for you. You don't have that extra person. So you're chief medical officer and chief dishwasher, whatever is needed to be done. We're starting now to see I can hire people. I have a little bit more latitude, but we still have to be conservative uh, in terms of our burn. And so you can't hire massive teams. Everything is to drive the product stability, to drive new sales traction, build our sales ramp so that we can get to that exit, whatever it may look like for the company. I think that's kind of the nexus. I think in terms of content expertise, I live it and breathe it. I've done it for 15 years as a nephrologist and, you know, as a trainee before that, I know clinical pathways. I know pain points in terms of starting a home program. I've done the research side of things. So I think there is a tremendous amount of expertise that I can't just exit myself with certain things when decisions get made around product features or specifications, or even these days getting drawn into what's our company policies around COVID with frontline staff. I'm the only you know, doctor in the company, so that I'm looked upon for a lot of different things. Not to mention, I have to be part of that senior C-suite exec team to contribute on strategy that may be things out of my domain, but I, as a senior you know, leaders, you, you need to involve a strategy of the company and doing board reports and things of that nature. So there's a lot of stuff every day that I have to do. No day is the same, it's, and it's, it's very, very exciting very invigorating. And uh, I feel like this year, where I'm taking on, again, more and more quantum work is the most exciting year of my career for a long time. And after 15 years in a that's that's saying something.
2: Yeah, you know, you've worked as a clinician, and you're you're a chief medical officer. Based on that, what's sort of the uh, biggest challenge you feel? Or, you know, what's the biggest strength that a clinician brings to the to the chief medical officer role?
1: It's a great question, Ali, because I've just struggled with this most recently. How do you make that transition, right? How do you go from, is it two yeah. years? Is it five years? Is it 15 years? I was doing three jobs last year. I was a researcher. I had grants. Okay. I still do. I've, I have like you know employees that work for me, that report to me. Uh, I have to publish papers. I have to answer to the Department of Medicine University. I was a clinician. I was on, on call Jeez. one and six. I have a big dialysis unit. I have fantastic clinical partners that I work with. Um, that I never want to let down. I never wanted to let down patients, and then this burgeoning company doing fundraisers and pitch, pitches and so on. Between patients, are often like after rounds, fitting it in. We're a UK-based company. I get up at five in the morning to do calls. We do board calls at mm. three a.m. my time, and traveling. It was too much, right? So, but I, I didn't want to let go of anything because I wasn't sure: is Quanta going to work out? Is this private sector? You know, we're not taught in academic medicine how to make that leap. No one's done it. So giving up the research practice was a big step for me. That was Jan one this year, very symbolic for me that I gave it up and I'm moving to, I'm doing Quanta and clinical work. And then I talked to a lot of mentors. I talked to people like Dr. Levin in Vancouver, people in my own midst, talked to other people who've gone and taken that leap in the industry. Some whole hog with both feet, some maintaining clinical practice. I talked to board members at our company and I really calibrated the opinion that my main strength to Quanta is being a doctor and uh, if I lose that I probably could take a full step in industry and within two or three years I'm not going to be current I'm not going to have the same credibility when I talk to other nephrologists as when I say I'm a practicing nephrologist and um, so I don't know that I'd ever want to give up clinical medicine completely I think you know maintaining a week a year or a clinic or things like that gives you credibility among your peers at, at quanta within the company but also with customers and, and other nephrologists in the field that I'm that I'm talking to.
2: You know, I love that you brought up mentors, um, you know, in the realm of business, even when I was completing my MBA, I recall how important mentorship is in helping us grow through our uh, career journeys. What's the biggest value add you got from your mentors, uh, you know, as, as you progressed in your career?
1: Yeah, I think the most pivotal moment in my career thus far Ali was Dr. Levin told me I want you to learn a lot of the stuff that I learned over 20 years doing what I'm doing as a senior leadership in healthcare now and I want you to get a formal education in that I would never have thought to do an MBA health administration when you're almost done training you want to get out there and work or you want to do a traditional research path and doing that um really opened up a lot of doors for me in terms of a sort of a bit of a differentiated career path. Other people do it for sure. It's not that I'm the only one, but I think it was at that time still a little bit unique and then pursuing surrounding yourself with people that have your best interest at heart and not just are trying to get you to follow in their path. And that sometimes that's a a hard thing to navigate when you're early on. I find putting, you know, if you find someone you really trust, you, you have to put your trust in them and you have to kind of do what they say for a period of time and know that they've been through those hoops before. So careful selection of mentors is super important there, but also you can get in bad situations where you're following somebody who may not have your best interests at heart, or maybe haven't made the best decision. So selecting mentors for their success, but also their self-actualization to know that you they're not trying to make a clone of you. They're trying to give you the best um, chance to move forward. I also think that diversity of mentorship is super critical as I've moved on. Diversity in age, diversity in their life experiences, diversity in their backgrounds, their training. So your mentor may not be the, the nephrologist. It may be somebody in a parallel industry, or maybe I would encourage people, especially in the academics, if you're going through training, don't just have academic people who are doctors as your mentors at your institution. Find people who've done other career paths, because the idea, I think mm-hmm. a lot of universities these days is like they want to make clones of themselves and mean to keep in the, the business of the university going. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not how we're going to push science forward. And that's not how we're going to really unleash the power of all of the great talent we have in Canada specifically. Like if you're at Stanford and you have Silicon Valley down the road, they're doing that all the time. There's constantly industry transition. They probably tons of people I know at Stanford. That's just commonplace. If you're in Winnipeg, University Manitoba, we don't have a big startup environment. We don't have a VC community. Mm-hmm. We don't have those natural connections. So we have to work a little bit harder. But especially in the era of virtual everything, it's way easier. So when I made that big change I made recently, I talked to like 15 different people I know all across Canada, the United States, Europe, to help inform my opinion. And I think that's, I would encourage, especially in the digital era, people going through training, keep, try to seek out those people of diversity. Other thing is be a mentor. Like I'm 45 now. I've done mm-hmm. some stuff. I, I need to make sure I'm paying it forward to other people. And I learned a lot from young people going through training and how different it is now to help inform what I'm doing as well. So when I talk about age diversity and mentorship, you can be a mentor and be a mentee to the same person sometimes. And it's kind of a weird way of describing it, but I've learned a lot from young colleagues going through a different era that I went through and it helps me stay current and calibrate how I'm behaving. And I think that's something I've really learned a lot is, you know, pay it forward.
2: What are some of the challenges of academic medicine when it comes to being a force for innovation? Do you feel like it's a bit of a it impedes innovation?
1: Yes and no. I, I think academic environments exist for a reason. And it's like steering a giant oil tanker, right? You're making very fine adjustments to something. that's a big monolithic organization. It's has some in some cases, hundreds of years of tradition, lots of bureaucracy, and Sometimes people are there for 20, 30, 40 years for that reason. They love the bureaucracy. They love the security of it. And it's a very safe space. People have a good salary, a good pension. They work regular hours. And really, that's not a, a crucible for major innovation. Getting grants is something that allows an investigator to have a little bit more space in which to like have autonomy over how money is spent. I think it's a super valuable opportunity that you have the protection of the university and all this fractional, well-established legal department, contracts department, HR department, IT department, you don't have to worry about that stuff. And then you have your sandbox of autonomy to like innovate with who you hire and what you're studying and that type of thing. And that's your first foray into it. After you've done that though, like one or two times, you, you've published a paper, you've done the knowledge translation, you've got the grant, it becomes a treadmill, right? And I think universities, thrive off that, they thrive off the fact that how they get paid is people getting grants and people get employed, that's the engine. Where I think some universities are, are fall down a little bit is the contemporary landscape of technology transfer. So many universities have this thing where if you were at the university and you made a discovery, they own 50% of your soul, everything you do. So if you're trying to like then take it out to market and and, and, and get VC dollars or seed round in that, The university owns 50% of it. And they also don't teach you super well how to get out and do that. They don't encourage you to do that because it's really, they're losing you. They're losing their grants and so on because those innovations are getting spun off. I don't think universities teach that very well for the most part in Canada anyways. I don't think they encourage it. And I think they have potentially antiquated ideas of what ownership of IP looks like. I would like to see more openness to private sector collaboration very early on. CIHR is doing some of that, and that, like yeah, partnership grants and so on. But really, that's going to turbocharge that collaborative space where the bright minds that have always been taught to go through universities, we need to teach them that a really bona fide, positive career path is an industry career path. And right now, I find, especially in clinical medicine, it's a dirty word because everybody in clinical medicine associates industry with the rep coming and giving you a free pen so you prescribe a drug back like which happened you know it still happens there's still some bad things that happen in that space less so than with controls now there used to be but that's really not what industry is isn't industry isn't the drug rep industry is a very massive machine that's well organized that can help turbocharge ideas and take them to market and i don't know really lensing that appropriately now in the academic space and that's what stymies innovation and business and creativity because the really creative people, after you've done the grants, you play in your sandbox, like like I'll put myself in this category, they don't wanna be constrained anymore. They wanna do bigger things and they can be valuable. And unless I sought out those opportunities myself, the university was never gonna give them to me. And I, I, and I think that's a major limitation we need to fix.
0: So I got two questions that stem from that. The first is, could, could you effectively summarize what universities are good at when it comes to innovation and supporting clinicians who want to be innovation friendly versus what industry is good at when it comes to supporting the same groups or innovation overall.
1: Yeah, I I would say for sure, Jeff, early stage, kind of the the crucible of fresh ideas, first of all, you've got infrastructure. If you're a lab scientist or a more computer-based scientist, you've got all these resources that are fractional available to you, as I said before, HR, they hire people for you. They manage payroll. They manage your lab space. They manage supplies ordering or high- your IT considerations. All of that is managed for you. So you can just concentrate on your ideas and developing and so on. They do that super well. You also have like an, an unbelievable talent pool of very inexpensive labors. Like some person coming out of their undergraduate degree or their master's or PhD or postdoc, you've got funded positions like at really low rates of really smart people who just want to get a degree and publish papers. And, and you're not competitive for that labor, right? Like, Especially in a place like Winnipeg, I'm not competing as Microsoft or Google or Apple for, for talented people. Yeah. You've got other minds around you that you can bounce ideas off. They're going to give you a rough ride just like they would, just like VCs would ask tough questions and and you present your ideas and so on. I think all of that for early stage investigators, man, what a great way to start. The problem is, is that doesn't translate to the university should probably be encouraging people more when they're 30 or 35 or 40, like the stages I'm maybe getting at now get out there and get your ideas and move on and let know when to let go of those people, because what happens, those people, they get frustrated. They maybe don't want to go through that grant treadmill anymore. They get jaded, they end up in maybe administrative positions or so on. And that's kind of that mid-career burnout versus if there was a clear path and incubators and mentorship for mid-career people to like get out there and do something and, and get funding, get jobs, work with industry, That would be the time to do it. And I think that that's the part that I really find is missing. And if I will say I'm bitter, Mm -hmm. uh, one, one aspect of my career trajectory, it's that like, that wasn't ever offered to me or encouraged to me or that sort of thing It was more like, I got, I kind of got to go get permission to have an industry job and and always be apologetic about it and so on. And, And we also train a culture of clinical trainees to like not work with industry and not talk to industry. And it's a dirty word and a bad thing. And we call it the dark side. It's not the dark side guys. Because guess what? CIHR is not funding new devices, new drugs, bringing them to market, spending billions and risking it all. They're not doing that because that's not their role. It's not the dark side. It's the stuff that brings innovation and new medicines and new technologies for patients. It's a team-based approach. So I think we need to like stamp that out, that type of culture out in academic institutions and really stop having senior academic administrators making those draconian rules who've never really worked with industry and don't understand it. I'm all for safeguards. To avoid collusion and avoid the stuff that's gone on, we all know about the dirty stuff of pharma. But we need to be contemporary and, and, and new with how we view those partnerships and make it seem like this is a career path you should be aspiring to, not something that's the dark side and you're sort of turning your back on academia.
0: So just as a follow up to that, then. You've mentioned several times in your past two answers to my questions that there should be more training for people who are earlier in their career so that they're better prepared to be CMOs or health tech leaders. What would that look like?
1: Yeah, great question. I've often thought of that, Jeff. Like, what would I do differently? It's easy to call things out, but what's the concrete solution to the problem? And I look to schools, I think, in Canada that do a fantastic job of this. I'll I'll have my brother, he's a computer engineer. He went to Waterloo. And Waterloo's engineering, their departments have got, you know, well-baked co-op programs. You do four months of school, four months in industry placement, back and forth. And then that allows, they can become, sure, they can be a professor of engineering at the end of the day or researcher, but they could also have good connections in all these companies that want Waterloo grads. And my brother ended up in San Diego at Qualcomm, was a senior staff engineer there for many, many years, and then started his own company there. That's the stuff I think in medicine we need to do more of is these cooperative type programs or streams either in residency or even in clinical training where people can have the option and it's applauded for and having leaders embedded that will go for work for to Medtronic and devices or to Boston Scientific or to AstraZeneca and do internships and gain that experience and bring it back. And I think that will bring more people into the tent Also, we need professors and lecturers at the university who are from industry, who, of course, are going to have conflict of interest declarations and so on. But people who talk openly about clinical trials in industry and how we bring products to market and regulatory classes and things of that, that's part of education. And I think that really needs, I think if I were a leader of a medical school in in Canada or United States or anything now, that would be a really great differentiating product from a university. Say, look, we have a stream where we're going to be we're going to be collaborating with industry and we're going to be training people to work in these medical clinical affairs jobs, CMO jobs and so on. And, and I think that would really smooth things out in terms of making it more of a team based approach.
2: Right. Um, I want to segue a little bit the conversation to NX stage. What is what's the story behind that?
1: So next stage medical is a startup company based in Boston. And so the world of dialysis, guys, again, most dialysis in the world is provided with these big refrigerator-sized hemodialysis devices that people go in and out of dialysis units three times a week, and they get treated, and it's got terrible outcomes for patients, 50% mortality in five years. It's very costly to do it. Had a form of home dialysis, peritoneal dialysis, for many years for the belly that a lot of people are candidates for. And again, even since the seventies, we've been doing some form of hemodialysis, the blood dialysis at home. And in Canada, it became um, a, a lot of research with really great investigators in Southern Ontario in the eighties and nineties said, Hey, we need dialysis slower, more often overnight. Patients are getting better outcomes. They eat better, they have better vitality. They go to work, their, their blood pressures are better. Their left ventricular mass shrinks, so all this great stuff. And in the U.S., they said, okay, well, we're using these big refrigerator-sized machines that are designed for nurses and skilled people to operate. Why don't we make a simpler machine that's better suited for the home? And stage was the first company to really do this in a meaningful way. So they developed a small, portable, easy-to-use device designed with patients for patients. They solved the problem with water purification with a special way of you just hook up a garden hose to a, to a, a chamber and it makes dialysis for, dialysate for you. And they went through a rough ride initially, but they became uh, publicly listed. They grew home hemo in the U S to about 12,000 patients from zero. So it went through all the regulatory hurdles and so on. And uh, they have been the market leader in home home hemodialysis in America for, you know, since inception, you know, 15 years ago, whatever it was now. So I became involved with them because I, when I was in Vancouver, I did a lot of uh, work with the Vancouver home hemo program and VGH and St. Paul's and some great mentorship there. And they were using traditional hemo devices as we did in Canada. And when I came to Winnipeg, I started a program using traditional devices, but it was growing slowly. And finally, Next Stage said, we're going to come to Canada. So I became involved with them early on and I started using their equipment exclusively and grew our program one of the largest in Canada now, but certainly the largest in the world at one time using NextStage. So I got invited as a very young physician. Hey, do you want to be on our scientific advisory board in Boston? Which I went down there and being relatively young, all these big names in America that had relatively small programming, The biggest program in the US at the time was like 50 patients. And I had a hundred patient program. And so I was like, wow, like I have a lot to offer here. And so was, well, was my kind of first major foray into a scientific advisory board on a regular basis. And with a big U.S. corporation, I felt, wow, I'm actually um, a world expert in this area. And I never, never realized because in Canada, there are so many people doing it. Next stage, subsequently got uh, bought uh, by Fresenius, which is the, one of the big dialysis providers in the U.S. that makes both equipment and does about a third of the dialysis business in the U.S., and, and that's around that time, as that transition occurred, I was like I wasn't sure my role with Nextage and I got asked to be involved with Quanta. So I sort of severed my ties with Nextage at the time. And now Quanta is developing a, a next generation home hemodialysis device. So we're kind of a competitor with Nextage as we sort of launched that in the US and, and in Europe.
0: That's fascinating. So you were approached by Nextage because of your experience and because of your work in healthcare economics?
1: As I am with all the competitors, all the Dallas manufacturers, like it's, we're competitors at the same time. We're going through something similar and trying to innovate and bring yeah. a product to market. And I consider like Next Stage is a competitor in the home space, but really the, compet- the competition to me is getting more people on home therapies overall. So the competitor to me is the in-center of Dallas' yeah. business and we're all on the same mission. So it's friendlier we can be and collaborative we can be with those people, the better overall it is for all of us.
0: All right. And uh, that's a wrap for the episode. But before we leave, I'd like to ask uh, if you have any pluggables that you'd like to plug any social media hashtags, or anything that you'd like to share with the audience?
1: Yeah, so I guess I, w- I would encourage people to follow at uh, Quanta That's our Quanta Dialysis Technologies handle on, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Some exciting stuff we're announcing all the time with our clinical trial in the US with lots of great announcements. I often promote stuff on my own uh, page, Paul Comenda, on Twitter and, and LinkedIn as well. Those are sort of the business platforms that I use and super excited to take this uh, idea that we've had a thesis of my career from an early clinician to a researcher now to industry and apply it um, in the U.S. and globally. It's been it's been an awesome journey and and I'm really excited for what's next to come.
0: All right. And you can also find uh, Mac Damien at at macadamian labs on twitter they're a full service software development and ux design consultancy and i think i forgot the name of this podcast right it's how it's med you can find us me abdo ali the guests at at how it's med on twitter and also at howitsmed.com and that's a wrap folks